Welcome to the Journal of Community and Supportive Oncology podcast for the month of April 2016. I am Dr. David Henry. This month we present articles on immunotherapy for metastatic renal cell carcinoma, olanzapine versus fosipreptant for prevention of chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting, patient-reported outcomes in prostate cancer after epiraterone therapy, diagnostic workup for detection of malnutrition in hospitalized cancer patients, how to reach high-risk underserved individuals for cancer genetic counseling by video teleconferencing. We have several case reports, including one on non-small cell lung cancer presenting as cardiac tamponade, and benzodiazepine toxicity exacerbated by concomitant oral olanzapine, and finally a feature article on new therapies in multiple myeloma. So let's begin. More successful immunotherapy with nivolumab approval for metastatic renal cell carcinoma Dr. James Abram in our community translation section. The phase 3 Checkmate 025 trial was carried out between 2012 and 2014 at 146 sites in 24 countries, enrolling 821 patients. Nivolumab was compared to the mTOR inhibitor Everolimus in the second-line setting after an oral TKI anti-angiogenic failure. Overall survival was 25 months versus 19.6 months in favor of nivolumab. Common adverse event effects were fatigue, nausea, stomatitis, and anemia. This new checkpoint inhibitor, nivolumab, has proven efficacy in the second-line setting and is probably now our first choice when patients fail the first-line oral TKI antiangiogenic in metastatic renal cell carcinoma. Olanzapine versus fosipreptant for the prevention of concurrent chemotherapy, radiotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting by Dr. Rulof Navari and colleagues from the Indiana University School of Medicine. 120 chemotherapy and radiotherapy naive patients with head and neck cancer were randomized to concurrent treatment with radiation and cisplatin and received either olanzapine or fosipreptant in combination with the base backbone regimen, palonosetron and dexamethasone. The olanzapine arm was oral administration of 10 milligrams daily for the first five days, while the fosipreptant arm was 150 milligrams of IV fosipreptin on day one. While the complete elimination of vomiting was similar between the two arms, the decrease in nausea was significantly better in the olanzapine arm in both the acute and delayed settings. Patients receiving olanzapine had significantly more drowsiness on the second day compared with patients receiving fosipreptin. However, this drowsiness resolved by the third day. Olanzapine may offer a similar or better alternative to highly metagenic chemotherapy anti-nausea regimens. Analysis of patient-reported outcomes in prostate cancer after abiraterone acetate therapy by Dr. David Sell and colleagues from the Robert H. Lurie Cancer Center at Northwestern University in Chicago. This phase three multinational randomized double-blind study enrolled asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic chemotherapy-naive patients with metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer. Patients were randomized to 1 gram abiraterone daily plus 5 milligram prednisone twice a day or placebo plus the prednisone in continuous 28-day cycles. There were over 500 patients per arm. Several different validated patient-reported outcome questionnaires were administered. Significant differences favoring the abiraterone prednisone therapy were observed in all of these PRO questionnaires, demonstrating significant benefit of this regimen over the prednisone placebo for health-related quality-of-life outcomes. Diagnostic workup for the detection of malnutrition 
in hospitalized cancer patients by Camilla Lighthold and colleagues from the oncology department at the Martin Luther University, Hale-Wittenberg, in Germany. These authors set out to evaluate and compare the use of various diagnostic tests for the detection of malnutrition in hospitalized patients receiving cancer treatment. In a single institution non-interventional reliability study, the nutritional status of 50 patients with cancer was assessed using the nutritional risk screening score, a bioimpedance analysis, and the measurement of vibratory parameters reflecting serum visceral protein levels. The authors found these three different diagnostic methods did not have an evident agreement among each other with a limited exchangeability. They concluded routine hospital practice should invoke several methods to identify cancer patients at risk for malnutrition since these current methods do not have exact interchangeability agreement. Routine high-risk underserved individuals for cancer genetic testing by video teleconferencing by Lindsay Met and colleagues from the University of Texas Health Science Center, San Antonio. Breast and colorectal cancers are common cancers for which genetic risk assessment and counseling are available. However, these services are often limited to metropolitan areas and not readily available in underserved populations. These authors performed an extensive demonstration project showing that there was high overall satisfaction and educational improvement in those receiving video teleconferencing off-site in an underserved area. It was considered an acceptable method of providing cancer risk assessment in a remote, difficult-to-reach population. We have several case reports this month. The first one, an unusual presentation of non-small cell lung cancer presenting as spontaneous cardiac tamponade, which may occur as often as 3% of the time, something to be aware of. Severe eosinophilia can actually be associated with cholangiocarcinoma. In this case report, the authors discuss the approach to treating cholangiocarcinoma. And finally, benzodiazepine toxicity may be exacerbated by oral olanzapine, one of the newer antiemetics we discussed earlier in this issue of the journal, so something to be aware of, albeit rarely. Finally, multiple myeloma, newly approved drugs forge paradigm shift or chronic disease by Dr. Jane Delartigue. In my career, myeloma certainly has come a long way, starting with a median survival of two years, some two decades ago, but now approaching 10 years median survival in some key opinion leaders may actually think it is curable. Of course, this journey started with the IMIDs, the immunomodulating agents, thalidomide, progressing to the more commonly used lenalidomide. Pomalidomide is now available for those patients who fail lenalidomide. The mechanism of action of all of these IMIDs is actually still unclear. The proteasome inhibitors next entered the fray, targeting the 26S proteasome, the site of degradation of regulatory proteins that need to be removed from the cell. So if this function is inhibited, these proteins accumulate in the cell and trigger cell death. Protezomib is the first in this class. Next-generation proteasome inhibitors have followed, including carfilzomib, which is an irreversible proteasome inhibitor, and is more selective than protezomib in its function, so there is less neuropathy and myosuppression. The most recent entry into this class is ixazomib in the relapsed refractory setting, in combination with lenalidomide and dexamethasone. It is a reversible proteasome inhibitor like bortezomib, but with significantly shorter half-life and given orally. Progression-free survival in ixazomib, lenalidomide, dexamethasone versus lenalidomide and dexamethasone alone was 20.6 months versus 14.7. 
And finally, the HDAC inhibitors round out this formulary of new medications in 2015, now available to treat myeloma in the upfront and relapse setting. Median progression-free survival in patients on a combination of HTAC inhibitor with bortezomib and dexamethasone was 10.6 months versus 5.8 months. Finally, the newest entry are the monoclonal antibodies, and they have arrived with two novel targets, CD38 and signaling lymphocyte activation molecule F7, or its catchy abbreviation, SLAMF7, both of which are broadly expressed on myeloma cells and not other myeloid and lymphoma cells. The CD38 antibody daratumumab and the SLAMF7 antibody elotuzumab, both are now approved in the relapsed refractory setting. And there may even be a role for the checkpoint inhibitors, PD-1 antibodies, but ongoing studies will inform this particular drug molecule mechanism entry into myeloma. And that concludes this month's podcast for the Journal of Community and Supportive Oncology, April 2016 issue. We welcome your comments or suggestions, so please visit us at our website, oncologypractice.com. That's oncologypractice.com, where you can review the current issue and search archived issues of interest. And thanks for listening.